You know, 20% of deliveries right now are new consumers. And of those new consumers, the most of them are going to continue using delivery. So um, that's going to really accelerate the growth for off-premise and be a further nail in this brick-and-mortar restaurant coffin. So um, it's hard to put that back in the bottle, you know, at this point. As much as people are going to want to hug and kiss everybody and have these rich offline experiences, I think they're going to get trained for a while on this new normal. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Work Project. My name is Derek Franco, and it is my great pleasure to introduce you to this program dedicated to bringing together smart and thoughtful leaders and innovators experimenting with new and unique ways of working. From remote work and culture to research into the peak performance of human beings, we'll learn alongside these experts pushing the boundaries today. Today's guest is Matt Newberg, the founder of Hungry.tv. Hungry is a new media platform exploring how technology is shaping the way that people eat. Hungry's recent documentary, Faster Food, took a look at ghost kitchens and the changes that have come about because of them in the last few years. During our conversation, Matt and I will dive deeper into this topic to explore how restaurants are using ghost kitchens today and how these new concepts will shape the food landscape tomorrow. We'll also take a closer look at COVID-19 and how it is currently affecting restaurants and what the lasting side effects of this crisis will be. And with that said, it's my great pleasure to welcome Matt Newberg. Well, Matt, thank you for being here today. I'd love to start by getting a little more information um, about Hungry and really kind of the projects that you've been uh, working on. Absolutely. Yeah. So Hungry is a new media company I started um, last fall. It kind of, uh, it was a happy accident, as I would say. Uh, We put out this video about ghost kitchens last summer. And um, I kind of wanted to combine, you know, my background in tech with what some of the emerging trends I'd seen in the food space um, and decided, hey, let's do a pilot about, you know, food tech and what that could look like. And let's just pick this crazy topic of ghost kitchens. So that kind of launched me on this path, kind of split up across, you know, a, a weekly blog slash newsletter that I put out. Um, videos, as you as you saw, and uh, just started doing events earlier this year, uh, and we'll probably pivot that towards a webinar slash kind of online, um, you know, live stream experiences, um, and and it's all really focused around um, you know analyzing the ways in which technology is impacting the way we eat on a daily basis and um, these different verticals that I'm seeing you know getting massively disrupted and rebuilt. I'd already been making food content, um, you know, with Nikhil Shah, who's a uh, editor and director for many years. And we had a project called Hungry Boys, a really good response. And then I enjoy being an investigative reporter, which I think is kind of my main kind of focus across all these three kind of channels is just my uh, general curiosity and willingness to, you know, really get on the ground, uh, really get my hands dirty with some of these stories. I've reported extensively on cloud kitchens. I've dug through lots of public documents on them, visited in many of their facilities, 
Um, so it's been pretty fun to to feel like I'm, you know, on the front lines of of what is happening in this very um, emerging sector of of the food space. Yeah, yeah. And would you mind giving a little more of kind of a definition of you know these cloud kitchens and you know what exactly they are, um, and really how they're changing the game currently? Absolutely. Yeah. So. You know, ghost kitchens um, have been around for a while in other parts of the world, mostly Asia. And, um, you know, they are basically 100% focused on delivery and takeout. So they're, they're kitchens that are, um, you know, they're the warehouses that are subdivided into uh, multiple kitchen spaces that they're individually leased by various uh, restaurateurs and food service companies mm-hmm. for the sole purpose of making food that gets sold on delivery apps, whether that's a restaurant's own delivery app or it's a third party like Postmates or DoorDash or yep. Breed. So um, that's kind of it at a high level. But um, you think of them as, uh, you know, there's about, for, for a company like Cloud Kitchens, there's about 30 kitchens per facility and they are on average are around 10,000 square feet. Um, and they're located in, you know, industrial areas that are still accessible to um, demand. So they're Usually in cheaper districts, from a real estate perspective, um, or they're they're known in many of them are in these opportunity zones where you can get a tax break because uh, they're seen as you know revitalizing a community. I would argue, you know, that they aren't, but um, you know they're able to get a good deal on these properties and then you know convert them into these uh, kitchens that get leased out to various. Uh, modern restaurateurs, shall we say. Mm. And so did the trend really kind of take off as Postmates and, you know, Uber Eats kind of came on the rise? Um, I think it was more of a lagging trend. As as delivery consumes more and more of a restaurant sales, it makes less and less sense for them to continue doing it out of uh, an existing brick and mortar restaurant. Mm. And I'm curious, actually, what typically is kind of the the main benefit from a number standpoint for a restaurant to go towards a ghost kitchen is it it's easier for them to try new concepts without having to worry about overhead um is it pretty cheap to just kind of fire up one of these kitchens and you know produce the same food in a different area uh what usually drives a company to go towards a ghost kitchen it's a great question i think um if you have underutilized kitchen staff Let's just say you're at, you know, 60% capacity, then sure, turning on delivery and saying, you know, we can accept delivery orders is fine. When you start to get into the higher numbers where your kitchen is almost at capacity because you have your front of house is completely full, then it starts to really cannibalize the experience for, you know, things start to back up in the kitchen and and you're going to have to turn it off. You know, there's one art, there's one value proposition around you know, expanding your radius. And if I have to open up, I have to spend a million dollars to open up a new store, um, just an overhead, you know, we got to build out a whole new facility and design it and whatnot and outfit it. I'd rather invest a hundred K into a ghost kitchen and spend $6,000 a month than spend a million dollars, right? Assuming I can capture new market share in this new geographic area. Um, or just completely say, you know, we're just going to take this outside of our brick and mortar four walls and, and do this in a completely separate, you know, environment and, and as this out. And right now I can't say that many people are having a lot of success, but, um, in those ghost kitchens because of the, of the fees and, 
also because of the fact that you still have to spend money to market those concepts. Um, you're not going to just suddenly be discovered one one second the, the minute you open. So, and then the argument around testing new concepts. Um, definitely, I think I think one of the pitfalls of food delivery and restaurateurs attempting it is that a lot of people think you can simply take your menu that you were using in a sit down environment and simply upload it online. And mm -hmm. that's your delivery offering because it just won't work from a cost perspective. And it's a completely different format. So you have to really be smart about, you know, your food costs, your labor costs, and designing a product for the end consumer that works for that particular environment. It's going to, you know, take 20 minutes or 30 minutes to get to your door. And the best restaurateurs who are doing things in the delivery space are actually accounting for that time as part of the way that they actually prepare the food and quality is, you know, they're QAing the food, you know, having it brought to them to just test and see, okay, well, what does this taste like 30 minutes after it's left this facility? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, you know, I know that you mentioned uh, cloud kitchens, so this is actually a brand um, of ghost kitchens, correct? That is correct. It is the most capitalized player in the market and I believe will become a monopoly in the space. And so this is the one that was uh, heavily invested in by the founder of Uber, correct? That is correct. He originally put $150 million of his own money and then raised another $550 million from other investors. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of money to put into a space, um, especially you know, coming in with that much capital. He's got to see some type of shift, just as you were saying, in customer behavior towards more of a delivery model to kind of have that much confidence, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, he um, he made a lot of smart plays in the last six months and, and also over the last few years. Um, you know, as a whole, delivery is growing, you know, at about a 20% annual growth rate. Um, it's probably accelerated a lot more since this whole mess started. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it just simply does not make sense for many restaurateurs to do a certain amount of delivery out of their kitchen at a certain point, unless they're just trying to do it because they feel like their, their competition is going to steal that order. And mm. <clears throat> it's going to help them with their, with their, you know, minimums with their suppliers, because there's, they're really not making money um, off of it if they're doing out of a brick and mortar. Right now, if you have 100% delivery and take out out of a brick and mortar and it's all going through an app, you know, it's, that's, that's really hard to do. So um, you kind of have to start from scratch. And I think that's where Cloud Kitchens comes into play and other commissaries. Um, yeah, he, he, he's definitely on trend. And I think, you know, the goal here is, is to own the physical real estate that the, rest, the future dining landscape you know, basically leases from him, own the data because they basically have software that's looking at everyone's sales and they're looking at, <clears throat> you know, how, what the split is across all these different marketplaces. I think, you know, the long-term play is to really become an Amazon that aggregates all the supply through its tenants and, you know, do the, the delivery for the tenants so that uh, they don't have to pay that you know, lofty commission and it will make them more successful, you know, as far as the tenants staying in the kitchens, um, whether the tenants will ultimately make money. I think, you know, like I said, I think only so many of them will succeed and the restaurant industry has always been incredibly competitive. Yeah. And I think 
It's not going to stop people from trying. And I think a lot of people today have invested in ghost kitchens. Almost everyone I've spoken to who's done it has done it for the same reason. It's because they all believe it's the future. No, that, that doesn't mean it's going to all work out today. But, you know, it's obviously going to prohibit, you know, the foodie kind of chef that was, you know, selling their burgers or their baked goods at Smorgasburg from mm -hmm. participating in this environment. It's going to be, you know, well-capitalized um, investor-backed restaurant groups that are willing to take a chance mm -hmm. uh, on this new model. And I think, you know, you're, you're seeing all sorts of, all sorts of activity in this space. And the amount of times that ghost kitchens have been brought up on investor calls is, you know, to try to instill confidence mm -hmm. from their investors about that they're looking toward the future has gone up drastically in the last few quarters. So, um, you know, you're seeing everyone talk about it, whether, you know, Chick-fil-A is in cloud kitchens, you got Boston Market at Kitchen United, you got dog house and using various uh, ghost kitchen providers. So it's definitely be catching on more and more within the industry, uh, QSR specifically. Yeah. And it, you know, what's really interesting, um, what you said with cloud kitchens kind of approaching the not only build out model and investing, but to try and capture the data behind mm -hmm. people. It's a very interesting concept because just like you said, very similar to Amazon, they could theoretically look at what are the most popular types of food? What are the post most popular recipes that are being delivered? And theoretically just build out those markets in you know places where it's sparse um, or at a cheaper value in the future if they own that data, correct? Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the, on the head. It's, you know, the, those who own the data are the most powerful in this new world, unfortunately. I think, you know, we've seen that with, um, you know, Expedia and Priceline, with the hotel and travel industry and anytime that there's a fragmented amount of um, supply, well, you know, so airlines are obviously, there's only so many of them, so they can fight against Expedia and Priceline, but mm. you know, hotels have had less uh, kind of leverage when it comes to what they can charge uh, people coming in through these channels. And I think restaurants, you know, there's going into this crisis been a, a, an uh, overabundance of, of options for consumers. And now um, it's clear that the amount of leverage that these new tech marketplaces have over the restaurants is just enormous and why we're seeing all these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Uber has been doing this program for the last three or so years where they've spun up 4,000 virtual restaurants using their data. Mm -hmm. And they haven't had to lift a finger as far as making any of the food. They just simply call their customers, their restaurants, and say, hey, you know, you're selling Middle Eastern food, you got ground beef, uh, why don't you start up a burger brand? Because we notice, you know, in this area of Brooklyn that there's just not enough burger delivery. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, it, they, they spin it up and they create this other brand and it helps Uber because there's just more transactions flowing through Uber Eats. They're, you know, creating liquidity within the marketplace. There's, there's untapped, unmet demand and they're stepping in with their data saying, hey, you know, you could potentially serve serve this market and they, they just can do that with their data and they don't have to become food service operators. So I think we're going to unfortunately see the commoditization of food service. Um, but data uh, time and time again will prove to be king and, and the, you know, real clear value differentiator here. Uh, also, there's some of their own brands that they're, that they're telling restaurateurs to go and cook on behalf of 
in exchange for a royalty and because they've tested a lot of these concepts they've tested the photos they tested the names and they've come up with these weird concepts um mostly aimed at you know it's a gen z market um where if you're a restaurant inside of this ghost kitchen you'd be cooking your own brand but you'd also be cooking um all sorts of other concepts uh just just to keep paying your bills and um you know, there's maybe a, a, a small handful of restaurateurs who have been successful in ghost kitchens so far. Um, and I think it will continue to remain that way mm. uh, until it becomes the norm uh, for the industry. Um, in many ways, ghost kitchens are were perfectly timed for this crisis that we're in. Uh, still, We're still not at a point where it, it makes sense for most people to do them. Um, we can get into that, but... Um, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a, a perfect opportunity to kind of go uh, that direction. So, you know, we've had the COVID crisis that's come up, uh, you know, we're kind of still in the middle of it right now. And it's had to have changed consumer behavior, um, just because, you know, people can't go to these restaurants. I'd love to kind of dive into really how the crisis has affected this industry. Um, I mean, what are what are you seeing? I mean, what are restaurants doing right now since people can't go out and eat? Mm hmm. So, I mean, the, the, the overall retail landscape is pretty bad, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. It's about two times worse than what it was in 0809 across the board. About 15% of restaurants have permanently closed or will close within the next few weeks. Many restaurants are reporting or saying that if COVID, la- you know, if, if shelter in place lasts four months, they have a 30% shot of survival. And if it's over six months, six months, 15% of them will survive. So that's just at a high level what's happening, mm-hmm. uh, what restaurants are reporting as far as their financial position. You know, across the board, delivery delivery transactions are down, um, but the average order value is up because people are ordering for their families and they're spending more per order. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what that does on a net-net basis, I'm not entirely sure. I can tell you about... Let's say 60% of consumers are using um, food delivery or or doing takeout. Um, 20% of consumers are trying food delivery for the very first time. And about 60% of those consumers say that they're going to continue doing so once we return to some level of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means there's an opportunity here to, to, you know, fundamentally shift consumer behavior. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like it's kind of trending that way already. Um, You know, one thing that I've noticed, at least in LA, especially, is that even restaurants that are open right now for, you know, takeout, I have to order through some kind of app, you know, whether that's Postmates, whether that's Grubhub or, you know, some third party system they have on their website. In order for me to go and get the food there, you know, my behaviors already had to change to order from them. Um, I guess, what other changes are these restaurants doing right now to survive? I mean, you know, a couple of people have cut their workforce. Um, you know, as I mentioned, some people are going towards a more digital solution to kind of make uh, orders more possible. I guess, what else are they doing right now? Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to rethink your entire offering, depending on where you play um, in the restaurant space. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of a lot of these um, restaurants become these kind of... Um, you know, makeshift bodegas slash markets that are using their wholesale purchasing power to provide 
you know, everyday essentials for their local customers. So instead of going to a grocery store, I could presumably just drive by my local restaurant and support them. And, you know, they can give me a basket of groceries. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, this at the high end, the Spago's, the Wolfgang Puck has a you know high end restaurant called Spago doing like a CS, like a farmer's basket, yeah. uh, farmer's market that's, you know, 50 bucks or something. I, I saw another restaurant doing that. Um, other restaurants have, you know, popped up little markets where they're, they're selling eggs and, you know, heirloom tomatoes. And, you know, this is mostly at the higher end of things, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, different virtual concepts pop up. So, you know, um, restaurants are creating offshoot brands that are tailored for delivery, uh, using the ingredients that they have available to them. Um, and when this was already happening before COVID, mm -hmm. um, are they investing more into that now where, you know, whether it's through ghost kitchens or in their kitchens themselves, kind of modifying to be more of a virtual option versus a in-house option? Yeah. I mean, I think you're seeing it more within existing restaurants of, you know, come up with a new concept, like uh, whether, you know, so there's a, rest a sushi restaurant called Katsuya that um you know is operating by a big hospitality group they created a new kind of bento box sushi delivery brand uh, that's operating out of their existing brick and mortars that are obviously closed uh, close to the public but they're doing delivery out of them and they also have commissary in cloud kitchens as well um other restaurants are just opting to do that within their existing real estate um, but it's all about what incremental you know revenue can i create with what i have available at my fingertips and i think you're going to see more of that as we go through this, as far as other, other strategies, I mean, there's, <clears throat> and then a lot of restaurants have stepped up to become community kitchens and, mm. you know, uh, nonprofit dollars to be reimbursed on a per meal basis, uh, to feed their local hospital workers or, uh, various, uh, public programs to give meals to people in need. So, um, those are a few examples of, of ways I see restaurants, um, kind of adapting right now, mm. um, as far as what's sustainable, you know, I can tell you that um, the current fees that these delivery marketplaces are charging are, are not going to be sustainable if delivery is the way that of the future and hence um, why it's going to be important for these restaurants to start to build to build out some of their own technology or use a platform like a chow now <clears throat> where they don't have to pay the lofty commissions. And what, what are those fees usually on like a Postmates or Uber Eats? it's a whopping 20 to 30%. And, and oh there's God. actually been a, a case right now uh, in court um, in New York, where it's like a class action lawsuit against all the platforms where they're basically saying that, um, you know, restaurateurs have had to increase their prices on these apps to make up for that fee and um, much to the chagrin of those platforms. And there's kind of this, proposal where the restaurateurs are demanding that you don't get charged more than 10%, which won't work for these companies that are already losing so much money mm -hmm. and they're running out of cash. I mean, yeah. DoorDash has to go public this year or it won't make it. And Postmates will need to um, raise money by next year or, and, and it likely will not be on good terms. So, um, it's it's bad across the entire board, is what I. <laughs> and so, out of curiosity, uh, I know you mentioned Chow Now, and that's actually been an app that I've seen a lot of restaurants go towards right now, um, at least in LA during the quarantine. Is there a reason for that? Are the you know the charges a lot less? What what is the reason that a restaurant would go towards Chow Now versus 
um, another service. Yeah, so like I said, it's going to be imperative that restaurants really own their customers and that they can do their own delivery um, because Chowdown does not charge a transaction, to my knowledge. They basically give you a flat uh, SaaS recurring fee, mm -hmm. uh, software as a service fee, where you license their technology and white label it with your brand and distribute it on your website, in the app store, and they just charge you a flat fee per month. Um, given your size, and they're not going to ding you for every single sale that you have. You just pay one time, and it doesn't matter whether you know you sell a thousand sandwiches or ten thousand sandwiches. You're going to pay the same price if you're a particular restaurant, and that's a much more favorable model for operators. And I think long term, how they need to start thinking about this once we come out of everything, and restaurants want to um, play in this channel, which is you know, based on the numbers I was sharing with you before, there's going to be a lot more, uh, there's going to be an accelerated growth here. Yeah. That being said, I do think um, many dining occasions will will be serviced by grocers um, than ever before. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I do think that grocers, when it, whether it comes to people cooking at home or buying pre-prepared meals from of various uh, from from various grocers, uh, I think that's going to increase as well. No, that's interesting, and you know that actually begs the question of you know when we do come out of everything, what does that landscape look like? Um, and so you're thinking that it's going to be more of kind of those pre-prepared meal markets that's growing. Well, I was just saying, you know, groceries projected to potentially online groceries are potentially going to hit about twelve percent penetration, and that's going to probably eat into you know what. To some amount of um, food delivery occasions, and you know those rest those grocers can offer pre-prepared meals. On top of that, you will have you know more direct-to-consumer models of um, various startups, whether it's territory foods, mm -hmm. um, which basically you know sends people these meals that they can just heat up in their microwave. Um, a company called Thistle up north, at, uh, Northern California, that does plant-based versions of that. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of local guys doing this, um, you know, delivering meals uh, in vans on a weekly basis to people. And I think I really like the local model because, you know, there's less transportation costs and things kind of this hub and spoke model. And I think if the unit economics work, uh, it's, a, it's a great um, business, but obviously it's, the people doing those businesses are more on the tech side um, and e-commerce side and less so on the traditional restaurant side. So I'm going to be curious about what, you know, all where, where all this restaurant labor goes, you know, it's across the board from management all the way down to, to the employees in the kitchens. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's, that's a great question. It's, you know, we we've already seen in so many industries just the effects of automation um, and, you know, how that affects the workforce with something like this, where, you know, restaurants are moving or having to move to a different model to survive. You know, whether that's, as you mentioned, a delivery first model, a subscription based grocery model, what happens to the workforce that's been let go? And, you know, what is the workforce that the restaurant hires back potentially look like? So I started thinking about this last fall when we, you know, put out that documentary. Um, there's there's a part of the video that tried to take a stab at this because we, you know, we're already projecting that the middle class of restaurants, the, the 
independent mom and pop single units um, would see, uh, would completely get eradicated by, you know, venture back cloud kitchen companies because, you know, the goal of those companies are to bring the price of dining down below the cost of eating at a restaurant or even maybe buying the groceries and cooking it at home if you factor in your time for a busy professional. You know, the, the, the back of the math, back of the envelope math on that was about an 85% reduction in labor um, because you don't have front of house staff, because you don't have servers, because you don't have as many chefs in the back and because the dishwashers are all kind of shared. I mm. mean, so there's a lot of economies of scale that go into these shared facilities where, um, you know, the, the various tenants don't have to hire the same amount of staff that, the, that they used to. Um, you reduce the kitchen staff at the back of the house down to two or three people inside of a tiny 200 square foot kitchen. So, you know, that's just looking at restaurants, you know, it's not looking at um, people going in from the restaurant space to go and work in commissaries for these new meal, meal kit companies or uh, pre-prepared meal startups. Um, but just simply looking at um, if the way of the future is actually off-premise ghost kitchen dining, um, then yes, indeed, we will lose 85% of that workforce from both both the back and the front of house. What changes do you foresee from a societal side of people going out to eat? Do you think that I guess, how do you think this will affect behavior, you know, six months out of quarantine to a year out of quarantine? Are people going out to eat less? Are they continuing the trend of, you know, ordering more food um, and having it delivered or just going and picking it up rather than going to restaurants? I mean, we were already experiencing this kind of off-premise revolution where, you know, there were people who were saying that there's like 66% of restaurant sales were off-premise, which, you know, I think is way too high. I, I think you're seeing in a fast casual environment, it's gone to about half. And in other segments like casual dining, it's like 17, 20% um, for off-premise. So off-premise is, you know, online or phone delivery or takeout. And you know, that's growing and growing as delivery continues to grow. Coming out of, so in, in the short term, let's call it six months or so, I think you're going to see in a lot of depressed sales um, in this industry because I think, um, you know, New, Gavin Newsom, you know, the governor of California is talking about getting restaurants back and saying that you're going to have, you know, 50% occupancy as far as the, uh, how many people are going to be allowed to, to dine in there. And then, you know, when I go out to eat and, and I've been living in New York for nine years or so, you know, I go to out to eat to share this experience with my friends, connect over a meal, connect with the, the staff and the, the chefs that are providing this experience and that they've kind of dreamt up. And I don't see myself, if, if that's really the, the new normal for the next however many months, I, I personally won't be participating in that. You know, I'll be ordering from them on delivery, but I would not go into the restaurant. And I think you're going to see, 
you know, 50% or more depressed sales. I mean, it, by, by default, default, you're going to have to have 50%, you know, fewer seats. So, um, the restaurants that were full are going to actually, you know, do 50% of, of in sales or, or less. Um, longer term, I think there is some behavioral change that sticks. Like I mentioned before, you know, we have right now, based on, you know, data from this company called Sense360, data suggesting that, you know, 20% of deliveries right now are new consumers. And of those new consumers, the most of them are going to continue using delivery. So um, that's going to really accelerate the growth for off-premise and be a further nail in this brick-and-mortar restaurant coffin. Mm -hmm. So um, it's hard to put that back in the bottle, you know, at this point. As much as people are going to want to hug and kiss everybody and have these rich offline experiences, I think they're going to get trained for a while on this new normal. And a lot of it's going to stick. And, you know, some of the pendulum will shift back. But I think we're going to net out at a mix of revenue that's going to be a lot higher in favor in terms of off-premise, um, for better or for worse. You know, if it's going towards this model, I guess what theoretically happens to the commercial real estate market as well? Because, you know, you have right now during this crisis, restaurants already saying that, you know, we're not paying rent during this time. You know, you've had large restaurants that have done it, large brands and even small mom and pops that have done it. And, you know, when these leases eventually come up, if it is shifting where less and less people are coming in store, what eventually happens to that commercial real estate market that was really banking on kind of building up centers of activity around these restaurants. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a bloodbath right now. I, I think um, you're going to have a lot of negotiation between these old existing tenants and the landlords where they're going to have to, you know, negotiate a percentage of their sales, at least in the short term. And overall the rents will have to come down and, you know, we're already seeing like, you know, articles being written about, different groups uh, like Simon property groups, which, which owns a ton of malls saying that they're going to be partnering with hospitality players to do, you know, do their own ghost kitchens. And not only are you going to see this trend of, you know, off-prem uh, dining within the restaurant industry, you're going to see this across the entire retail landscape. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been also writing about a trend called micro fulfillment for, a few months and and that's basically there's a about an 80 billion dollar estimated opportunity in turning parking garages and other kind of industrial real estate into these kind of last mile fulfillment centers that mm -hmm. are stocked with these robotic shuttles that pick groceries and they put them onto these ground floor robots that bring them to two people inside of this warehouse that are checking out bags for online orders and then they're going out and the goal is to get that delivered within an hour, you know, at some point. And um, it's slowly happening in certain parts of the world and just starting to take, you know, take shape in, in the U.S. Uh, there's about eight micro fulfillment centers right now um, working with various grocery stores uh, on the backs of these stores. You're going to see these kind of standalone facilities pop up that are going to sell you everything from you know, an iPhone charger to some groceries that you want delivered within an hour on demand. So, um, but I think it will mean a lot less 
uh, retail fulfillment. You're going to have a lot less inventory sitting at inside of that retail store and their stores will ultimately have to become smaller. And it's just going to look a lot like, you know, this one area of Soho in New York city where you can kind of walk around to the, all these different, you know, direct to consumer e-commerce players and sample their offerings, but you can't buy anything in the store. It's yeah. like everything, right. Or going away and getting a, you know, seeing their luggage and buying it online. And it just fundamentally changes the entire buying the shopper journey, shall we say, they, they go on into a brick and mortar space, not to buy anything, but to simply, you know, try it. And then they order it online, they, they set up a subscription online. And, and that's kind of the big shift I'm seeing across the board, whether it's food or other retail. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, you know, we people were kind of seeing it already when Amazon bought out Whole Foods. That was one of the biggest things that they were looking at is they could get groceries delivered by, you know, Whole Foods had already built the infrastructure out. They could simply buy them up and then start delivering from the store. So I think you're 100% right that we'll start seeing a lot more trends for fulfillment in that direction as well. Well, perfect, Matt. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to sit down with me. Um, just out of curiosity, if people kind of wanted to you know, learn a little bit more about Hungry or you know, sign up for the newsletter, where would they go? Yeah, thanks, Derek. It's been, it's been awesome uh, chatting about the future with you. Check out my website. It's hungry.tv. It's H-N-G-R-Y.tv. So hungry with no you to keep it techie for everyone. <laughs> and they can just scroll down and sign, sign up for the newsletter, uh, which is currently free. And, you know, I have my latest blog post up there and some of the media mentions that Hungry's gotten over the last couple months. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Matt, thank you again for taking the time. And uh, yeah, you know, like, like I said, after this is all over and we're all out of quarantine, we'll we'll have to meet up or to continue the conversation. Yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll you know, grab some food at a restaurant or something. Yep. Or... <laughs> <laughs> all right, man, I appreciate you reaching out. And, uh, yeah, always fun to chat about this stuff. No, for sure. For sure. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Project. Now, as with all of our work, this interview is part of our ongoing research, and I'd love to get your thoughts and feedback on the discussion. To weigh in, visit our website at fowproject.com or reach out on Instagram at thefowproject. We'll be sure to share the feedback on our social channels, and it could be featured in an upcoming episode. And with that said, thank you for listening.